You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does it mean to live in a wounded world? What does it mean to live in a world that is scarred, that is wounded by war, by violence, by racism and white supremacy, by empire and colonialism? Those were the pressing questions that Du Bois was wrestling with during his lifetime. And those are still questions that we're wrestling with today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I was born by a golden river and in the shadow of two great hills, five years after the Emancipation Proclamation. The house was quaint, with clapboards running up and down, neatly trimmed, and there were five rooms, a tiny porch, a rosy front yard, and unbelievably delicious strawberries in the rear. A South Carolinian, lately come to the Berkshire Hills, owned all of this. We were his transient tenants for a time. My own people were part of a great clan. Fully 200 years before, Tom Berghart had come through the Western Pass from the Hudson with his Dutch captor, sullen in his slavery and achieving his freedom by volunteering for the revolution at a time of sudden alarm. Tom died about 1787, but of him came many sons, and one, Jack, helped in the War of 1812. W.E.B. Du Bois was one of the best writers of his times who could explain the experience of being a person of color at the time of the new 20th century, better than anyone. Du Bois is truly a singular figure in American history. He lived a remarkable life. He was born in 1868 during the presidency of Andrew Johnson during Reconstruction. He died in 1963 in Accra, Ghana, literally the day before the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, 95 years That's Chad Williams. Chad Williams is the Samuel J. and Augusta Specter Professor of History and African and African American Studies at Brandeis University. He's also the author of The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. He authored an incredible 22 single-authored books in history, sociology, uh, literature, uh, you name it. There's really no other individual like him in American history. Lions have no historians, and therefore, lion hunts are thrilling and satisfactory human reading. 
we have had no bards, and therefore it has been widely told how American philanthropy freed the slaves. In truth, we revolted by armed rebellion, sullen refusal to work, running away to the north in Canada, and by furnishing 200,000 soldiers and many times as many civilian helpers in the Civil War. You see in his writing the importance of service in the military and the connection between service in the military and citizenship. As a historian, uh, as someone who was born just a few years after the Civil War, I mean, he had a deep appreciation for and even reverence for uh, the black military tradition. Going back to the American Revolution, uh, his great great grandfather was very proud of him serving in the American Revolution. His father briefly served in the Civil War. Uh, so he uh, definitely linked uh, war and black military service uh, in particular uh, with the acquisition of citizenship rights and the broader um, acquisition of, of freedom. We're going to talk to Chad Williams about that and about a decision that W.E.B. Du Bois made that was very controversial and one that he would deal with for the rest of his life. So we're talking to Chad Williams, the author of The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Seems like a larger-than-life figure. He was at the forefront of nearly every major issue facing African Americans in the 20th century. He was founder of what we consider today the modern civil rights movement. He was one of the forerunners um, of Pan-Africanism and struggles for African independence. And he was just an incredible scholar really the quintessential scholar activist uh, in African-American history. Now, he was one of the co-founders of the NAACP, the only uh, African-American recognized as one of the founders, even though there were others involved in some of the initial discussions to create the NAACP. He also took control of its uh, news magazine. When we look back now and the image of Woodrow Wilson today, I mean, they're removing his name off Princeton in various places. And mm -hmm. and now there's much more awareness of Woodrow Wilson's racial views. But W.E.B. Du Bois uh, supports him. That was kind of an oddball thing, right? At the In politics at that time, an African-American, first of all, to be a Democrat or to be supporting yeah. a Democratic candidate. Yeah. Yeah. Du Bois really made a leap of faith in supporting Wilson. In 1912, uh, Du Bois was briefly a member of the Socialist Party. He set aside his membership in the Socialist Party um, and really reasoned that because Woodrow Wilson was educated, more erudite, uh, even though he was from the South, he was not a rabid white supremacist uh, like many other uh, politicians, uh, Southern politicians were at the time. Uh, he felt that he would be fair uh, when it came to African-Americans, even likening him to potentially the next Abraham Lincoln. So he, mm -hmm. unlike the majority of, of African-Americans at the time, voted for the Democratic candidate. Uh, most African-Americans were staunch Republicans. And he was gravely mistaken <laughs> by his support for Woodrow Wilson. Folly of supporting Wilson and his administration became clear to Du Bois very quickly. Really quickly, so, like 1913, it seems like they're just, first of all, I'm not sure if Wilson really did much to say, 
thank you or anything like that. Maybe no, Tumulty, no, no. he he seemed to send Tumulty out for all the um the interactions with the, yeah, the yeah. African American yeah. and, and the boys corresponded directly with with Tumulty. Yeah, it very quickly get disappointment on uh, appointments to the civil service, and the, there is a tension there. How much of it is Wilson, right, and how much of it is he's forced? Because Wilson, of course, gets elected with the with the South, which is sure. uh, at this point the Redeemer governments, and he's he needs congressional support from Texas, and it's you know, how much is neglect, and how much is what Wilson wanted to do, you know, is he's always a, I don't even know if it's an answerable question there. Yeah, well, I think it is. I mean, you know, politics is politics. And Wilson mm-hmm. was a, a very shrewd politician, uh, maybe not shrewd enough, especially when it came to the League of Nations and that that debacle. Mm-hmm. Um, but Wilson was also a white supremacist uh, without question. He was a more sophisticated uh, white supremacist, uh, but one nevertheless, uh, he believed that segregation was in the best interests of both white people and black people. In this way, he was very reflective of kind of the Southern strain of progressivism, which saw Jim Crow as um, the best way to solve uh, what was characterized as the race problem. Uh, so his segregation of the civil service, his belief in keeping African-Americans in their proper place, his support, screening birth of a nation in the White House, his actions in Haiti you can go go on and on and on. Um, you know, these were ultimately his his decisions um, and were, were deeply reflective of his racial views. Yeah, Haiti's another one that doesn't get mentioned. We hear a lot about the birth of the nation and the various because it's it's some quotes are used. He doesn't, as you point out in your book, he doesn't deny those quotes. Books right, they're right. out of context from what Wilson had said, but he doesn't deny it. He see he says this is wonderful. It's like telling history with lightning. Yeah, now that yeah. could either be a great thing about the movie, how well, because to this day people look at Griffith as um a great movie maker, but, or it could be comments. There's some actions by Tumulty, of course, to clean up afterwards and say, well, stop saying Wilson endorses your movie, but he never denies it. He never de- he decries yeah. it or anything close to that. So, yeah. So yeah. And, of, and of course, he's a, a graduate, um, fellow graduate student with, with Thomas Dixon. Uh, so they knew each other. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, going back to Du Bois, uh, Du Bois and, and Wilson have a, a really interesting relationship, which I explore uh, in mm-hmm. the book. I probably could have gone much, much deeper. But in some ways, they were kind of kindred spirits. Obviously, coming from very different backgrounds, different perspectives, but they both held a very deep belief in the importance of democracy, um, of democracy, not just as a political system, but democracy as a way of life, mm-hmm. a way of organizing society, of, of organizing uh, the world as a principle, as uh, an ethic. Um, and that really kind of brought Wilson and Du Bois together uh, when it came to support for World War One. when Woodrow Wilson makes the um, the charge, the claim that the United States is entering the war to make the world safe for democracy. That's something that resonates with Du Bois. Um, he's obviously thinking about democracy in terms of African Americans and other peoples of African descent. But both Wilson and Du Bois see World War One as this moment to really remake uh, democracy on a global scale. There might be an assumption that because he ended up not liking Wilson very much or certainly didn't have much reason to, that maybe he was just enamored with the other presidents and obviously didn't support Taft for re-election. 
Teddy Roosevelt, Harding Coolidge? Did he have, you know, opinions of these presidents as well? Yeah, Du Bois was always very opinionated. <laughs> and, and pretty much every uh, issue of the crisis that coincided with a national election, he weighed in. Certainly after his mistaken belief in Woodrow Wilson and the Democrats, uh, he was uh, certainly very skeptical of, of supporting uh, any Democratic candidates, um, you know, after he becomes more and more disillusioned with the political process uh, and the two-party system uh, throughout the interwar period. Uh, he supports third-party candidates, uh, Socialist Party uh, candidates. Um, you know, by the end of his life, uh, he's, um, you know, kind of resigned to not voting for any candidates uh at all, because he feels that it's not going to make any difference, that the American political system had become so broken and that democracy had had become uh, such a uh, a distant reality. And he takes kind of a second bet. He takes a bet on Wilson in the beginning, doesn't work out. And he kind of, as as the run up to World War One begins, he takes kind of a second um, bet. I personally don't see it as much of a leap because I do understand it that if you that if African Americans fight in World War One on in defense of democracy and we don't want the German system, they will be able to make that case that we deserve full rights. And you see Ninth and Tenth Cavalry, San Juan Hill, the lesser known today about the Revolutionary War and the War of eighteen twelve, the bravery shown at Civil War, which if we just fight this world war and we're seen on the stage as brave fighters, we'll gain more and more rights. I mean, totally logical to me. It's happened with a lot of different groups. That- well, I think you're absolutely right. And that was really Du Bois's logic. Uh, he, as a historian, uh, as someone who was born just a few years after the Civil War, I mean, he had a deep appreciation for and even reverence for uh, the black military tradition, going back to the American Revolution. Uh, his great-great-grandfather was very proud of him serving in the American Revolution. His father briefly served in the Civil War. Uh, so he uh, definitely linked uh, war and black military service uh, in particular uh, with the acquisition of citizenship rights and the broader um, acquisition of of freedom. Um, but uh, I think he... Um, and he was not alone in in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, many other African-Americans felt that way as well. Um, but when it came to World War One, I, I would say I would argue that the vast majority of African-Americans were apathetic towards their participation, their active participation in the war, especially considering the conditions that they were facing socially, politically, economically as the United States entered the war um, in terms of just horrific uh, racial discrimination and violence, disenfranchisement, economic uh, exploitation, um, you go on and on and on. Uh, so uh, for many African-Americans, when Woodrow Wilson says that the United States is going to fight to make the world safer democracy, they're more concerned about democracy for them in the United States. And one of the ideas that I know Du Bois to kind of double consciousness, which is, you know, you're an American, but also an African-American, and you just can't get away from that. And I I I imagine a lot of people feel that that's never has changed. You know, it's we should make it clear that he's really uh, pushing that we that that African-Americans must join, you know, support this cause and be Americans first. 
Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent point and, and a point that I, I really emphasize in my book. Um, du Bois talks about this notion of double consciousness in his 1903 classic book, The Souls of Black Folk, these two warring ideals, as he characterizes them, of being black and of being American and the desire to merge these two aspects of African-American identity. And in some ways, World War I is his opportunity to put theory into practice, to see if it was indeed possible for African-Americans to be fully American. Um, and he believed uh, that the war was potentially that opportunity. He really put his credibility um, on the line in fighting uh, and encouraging uh, African-Americans to demonstrate their loyalty, their patriotism as 100% American citizens, uh, both uh, in terms of their support for the war, but also in terms of their service in the military. He's disappointed. I mean, I think first, the first thing to say is that the government does include African-Americans in the selective service as soon as the war is declared and they want, they're not looking for com for African-Americans to be in combat. There has to be a movement to fight for that already when uh, Du Bois does get over to France or starts hearing things. There's all sorts of uh, mm -hmm. um, trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as I, as I talk about in my book and go into a lot of detail, uh, Du Bois was at the forefront of nearly every issue related to African Americans during the war. And in particular, as it related to their experiences in the army of advocating for, uh, an officer's training camp, uh, which was, uh, segregated, uh, organized in Fort Des Moines, Iowa pushing for the creation of an all-black combat division, the 92nd Division, composed of draftees, uh, which was led by uh, black officers uh, trying to ensure that the draft uh, was uh, being implemented uh, fairly. Uh, so he was deeply invested in all of these various issues related to African-Americans during the war, corresponding with Newton Baker on, on multiple uh, occasions, um, fighting for his friend Charles Young uh, to uh, not be prematurely retired from mm -hmm. the army. So he was uh, in many ways using the war as a continuation of his activism uh, and support for African-American civic equality. But certainly when the war comes to a conclusion and he goes uh, to France, uh, again, I talk about in my book um, how he was able to actually get a passport uh, to go to France. He is shocked uh, by what he hears directly from the mouths of black soldiers and officers about the horrific racial discrimination and institutionalized white supremacy that they experienced uh, in France. And it's the beginnings of his disillusionment uh, with the war, something that, as I talk about in the book, he reckons with for really two decades uh, from one world war to the next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. 
I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, and a reminder, we're talking to Chad Williams, the author of The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois, and The First World War. And he makes the decision... Hearing things like uh, Officer Charles Young, who who uh, we should mention was brave officer, well regarded for his service in the Mexican intervention mm-hmm. that had just happened, and then they're inventing all of these things to really to get him disqualified. And there's many stories like that, so they're not treating the officer or of African Americans well. There just seems to always be this this whole propaganda operation. Before the war and after to rewrite what happened. So there'll be a battle or there'll be some action like, well, uh, really it was, if it wasn't for those white officers, they would have, um, never, um, never done well. And mm-hmm. as you reveal, he wanted to, or at least had the idea of assembling a book. Yeah. And that, that's really the, the central thread of my book. Uh, Du Bois, um, was committed to writing what would have been the definitive history of the Black experience in the war. Uh, in October 1918, he's charged uh, by the NAACP Board of Directors for starting to compile uh, information for a book on the Black experience in the war. He goes to France to begin research for this book, and he's deeply aware, uh, to your point, of the racist slander attempts on the part of white military officials to rewrite the history of black military service and the war specifically uh, so that African Americans don't have a place in that history. Uh, so he is very committed to addressing uh, the slander of refuting the lies and distortions that are already beginning to be propagated uh, immediately after the war 
comes to an end. So Du Bois writing the history of the war immediately becomes deeply personal uh, for him uh, and something that he commits to and spends, as I talk about uh, in the book, really over 20 years trying to write this uh, incredible history that to this point, no other historian other than myself has gone into any detail uh, exploring its significance, uh, what it meant to Du Bois's uh, life, but also why it was important to uh, the broader history of uh, Black freedom and struggles for uh, democracy in the 20th century. First of all, he's the heavyweight. So if you're going to come out with a book to counter propaganda, you give it to your heavyweight. And it looks like some of the soldiers who are there, they got, that they're willing to sort of surrender their photographs, their their recollections, mm-hmm. their memories, and he's gathering detail. It becomes clear as the years go on that he's not going to be able to finish the book for a variety of reasons, but he doesn't always return some of these items. <laughs> and it seems like you, through your book, there's some examples of people getting a little frustrated about it. Even one who, where there's a case where they, they needed immediately to refute what a mm-hmm. white officer previously had been somewhat nice to them and now is, was writing this propaganda, um, mm-hmm. in the, in the middle twenties, uh, probably to boost his own career. You know, they, it seems like, yeah, he, he, he keeps asking Du Bois, like, can you, can you give that back to me? And he's just holding it. I mean, yeah. that just creates a, there's a lot there. Um, <laughs> some is like, why did the, why does this happen to him? And then the ethics of that as a, mm-hmm. you know, as a historian. I mean, one of the most fascinating relationships that I explore in my book is between Du Bois and black veterans. So really immediately when the war comes to an end, when he goes uh, to France, Black veterans are investing their historical visions, their hopes for telling their story in Du Bois, right? And he's encouraging them to provide him with documents, letters, photographs, just incredible trove of materials that he envisions using to write his history, to make it authentic uh, and to make it irrefutable. And he continues to collect materials um, over the years. Uh, He incorporates them. Uh, into the manuscript uh, that he's writing, which ultimately swells to over 800 pages. Um, but he doesn't return uh, most of these materials, even though, as you mentioned, uh, many veterans, particularly by the 1920s and, and 1930s, are clamoring to have their materials back. It reflects Du Bois's ego, <laughs> his, his selfishness, uh, that he felt that these materials were uh, better off in, in his hands. But it also, I think, is illustrative of the inner conflict uh, that Du Bois had uh, as well. That as he struggled uh, with uh, the history of the war, as he struggled with his disillusionment with the war, as he struggled uh, with his own uh, guilt about supporting Mm -hmm. uh, the war, uh, he used the writing of this history as a way to to reckon with all of those conflicting emotions. Uh, And that uh, really led him to make some very questionable ethical uh, decisions, which for me as a historian were important for me to talk about uh, in my book. Um, and I think are still important today, especially when we consider that all of those materials that Du Bois collected are still sitting in an archive right now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, your book, it's a novel. It could be a novel. This story could be a novel or a movie. This uh, story of Du Bois and his, and his struggle and that's why I think the book is is entertaining as well as informative because of that, really getting into Du Bois. And Du Bois is somebody who's greatly revered. So to, to even 
touch on some of the lesser qualities, you know, uh, is <laughs> yeah. is a big thing. Uh, I guess two questions there. You could comment somewhat on on just that um, mm-hmm. Du Bois as a person, and then you're writing a you're writing this book as well. You're assembling materials. Did you ever feel any? Uh, commonality with him. Any? Yeah, there there are many times where I thought I might end up like the boys and never finishing my book. <laughs> that would have been that would have been very meta. Um, but but Du Bois is, as we started off the conversation, a a one of a kind figure. He is truly larger than life. Um, very easy to get seduced by him to kind of fall into hagiography hey, in writing about such. An incredible individual like Du Bois, but I really wanted to explore his full complexity and his full humanity. And I think that really comes out in, in my book, uh, where we see Du Bois in all of his brilliance, all of his accomplishments, but also we see Du Bois with, in all of his flaws and in all of his failures as well, right? To think about Du Bois as somehow failing you know, when it comes to eventually completing his book, uh, when mm-hmm. it comes to uh, the failure of World War One itself. Um, that was something that I really wanted to to struggle with, uh, and I think provides an opportunity for us to appreciate uh, Du Bois uh, in in a new way. Yeah, I think there's two two other things. One is it's not just that he believes that the service by African Americans in World War One will lead to better civil rights at home, but he's also got his eye on Africa and the. There's German colonies, so right there you have, uh, especially as you get near the end of the war, they know where it's going. They're going to either, we're going to win, or at least they're going to have to give those up. There's opportunities there, and maybe even to have a little bit of a early independence movement or some cooperation. He also seems to prophesize the peace at Versailles won't stick, that there, that uh, World War II uh, is likely. If- yeah, Du Bois was incredibly prophetic in identifying the roots of the war in empire and colonial competition amongst the European belligerents uh, for control of Africa, its human and material resources. And this was one of his main arguments in supporting the war, uh, that it can be used as an opportunity to kind of begin the process of dismantling the uh, imperial system. And he also recognized that if the question of empire was not adequately addressed, it could indeed lead to future conflicts. Uh, And he was absolutely right uh, about that. As I talk about uh, in my book, he was um, at the forefront um, of the campaign um, or or the movement to address the aggression of Italy uh, when it came to to Ethiopia uh, in in the early uh, 1930s. And he saw that as an illustration of how this question of imperial and imperial violence uh, in Africa had not been addressed in the aftermath of World War I, how it was continuing during the interwar period, and how ultimately it would uh, lead to an even more catastrophic conflict, which, as we all know, happened with World War II. And when that war comes, he's much more ambivalent than he was during the run-up to World War One. Yes, he is. And that's a really reflection of just the evolution of his disillusionment, his coming to the realization that World War One was indeed a complete failure, but also the hardening of his anti-war principles and beliefs, which was tied to him trying to write the history of, of the war. Um, by the time he is you know, working on his, his book by the mid-1930s, he's envisioning it as an anti-war book, as a lesson 
about the horrors of, of modern warfare. He gives up working on the book, not coincidentally, in uh, 1940, just as uh, Hitler is is about to lead his campaign into the West uh, and invade France. And he's much more cynical uh, about the outcomes of World War II, seeing that democracy uh, was not achieved uh, during World War I, uh, did not exist prior to World War II, and certainly was not going to exist after uh, World War II as well. Grudgingly accepts that African Americans are going to have to do their role, but is under no misgivings that anything positive is going to come out of this war. Other than what we discussed today, and we covered a lot that's in the book and everything, is there is there something we missed? Is there anything else that's, that's important for listeners to know about W.E.B. Du Bois and, and your book? Well, Du Bois is someone that we all need to to know of um, mm-hmm. and to to think about in terms of his relevance uh, today. Uh, the title of my book is The Wounded World, uh, and that was inspired by the title of Du Bois's book, that he didn't finish, uh, which he titled The Black Man in the Wounded World. And that title is so evocative uh, and and resonant and speaks to, I think, the larger question that he was trying to answer. What does it mean to live in a wounded world? What does it mean to live in a world that is scarred, that is wounded by war, by violence, by racism and white supremacy, by empire and colonialism? Um, Those were the pressing questions that Du Bois was wrestling with during his lifetime. And those are still questions that we're wrestling with today. Chad Williams, thanks for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank Chad Williams for coming on the program. Remember his book? The Wounded World, W.E.B. Du Bois and the First World War, Chad Williams. What can I say about it? We're touching on a subject here. We're just touching on the surface of it. If you want to read about some of the tragedies that occurred during this time and to see more of the history of how Du Bois is constantly confounded by it, unable to get away from this problem of, I thought if we just fought in a war, things would be better. In much more detail, I suggest you get this book, The Wounded World, Chad L. Williams. Thanks for listening. Thank you.